All right, tonight we're going to look at the sixth of the seventh letter of the seven letters here uh, to the to the church in Philadelphia. So I will read starting in uh, Revelation three, starting in verse seven. We'll read up to verse 13. And starting in verse seven and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the holy one, the true one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, sorry, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So again, last time, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the letter to the church in Sardis, which was the first part of Revelation 3 the fifth of the letters to the seven churches. And we looked at Sardis and we noted that Sardis was the dead church. And because Jesus tells them that they had a reputation for being alive, but they were actually dead. And we argued that a dead church, at least I put forth the argument, a dead church is one that no longer exhibits the marks of the church. So we we looked at the three marks of the church that the Reformed tradition typically uh, puts forth in their confessions, the fact that, that you have the preaching of the pure gospel, that you have the faithful administration of the sacraments, and you have the exercise of church discipline. If you have these three marks, to some degree or another, you are a true church. And I argue that if you're a true church, then you're a living church, a live church. Now Jesus then warns them to remember what they had received and heard, or else Jesus will return like a thief. So he warns them. Now, again, this idea of returning like a thief, it played into the the history of Sardis, if you recall. Sardis was a a city on top of a large hill that had a sheer rock wall face on one side. And it was considered to be an impregnable city until it was, of course, conquered twice in its history, both times by people sneaking in when they were caught unaware. So they were the dead or sleepy church. And here this kind of this, the history of the city plays into the history of this church as Jesus warns them to wake up. And he says, wake up and remember what you have heard before I come to you like a thief, like the people who conquered that city came like a thief in the night. Then Jesus offers an encouraging word to the faithful remnant in Sardis and promises to the overcomer that he will clothe them in white robes that, and that their names will never be blotted out of the book of life. Now here we come to the sixth of the letters to the seven churches. And this one now is to the church in Philadelphia. 
And as I like to do before we get into the text, I want to just go over a little bit about the history behind the, the city of Philadelphia. Not the city in Pennsylvania, but the city that's in Asia Minor. Okay, I actually have been to Philadelphia, the city in Pennsylvania, once. Never been to the one in Asia Minor. Now, the city of Philadelphia was a city in Asia Minor, about 25 miles southeast of Sardis, as we continue our little semicircular route through the seven churches that forms a little circle, starting with Ephesus, going up north. Then once you hit, um, I believe it was Thyatira, you start heading south. And here we are at Philadelphia. It was a relatively new city by ancient standards, having been established sometime around the mid-2nd century B.C. So at this point, the city is about 200 years old. Uh, The city was to be a mission city for spreading the Greco-Asiatic culture in the eastern regions of Asia Minor. So it was set up as sort of like an outpost to, to sort of Hellenize the rest of, you know, the eastern part of the Greek empire at that time. Philadelphia sat on an ancient fault line, and thus the city itself was very susceptible to earthquakes in the region. In fact, there was a devastating earthquake in the year 17 AD, which effectively destroyed the city. So then Emperor Tiberius, or Caesar Augustus, had the city rebuilt, and in their gratitude, the city then renamed themselves from Philadelphia to Neo-Caesarea, or New Caesar. And then 60 years later, the city again was renamed, this time to the name Flavia. I don't know why it was called that, just that's what I looked up. And like other major cities, uh, Philadelphia was a center for imperial worship. So if you remember, most of these cities in the Roman Empire had some form of emperor worship in them. So there was this cult of emperor worship. And basically, in the Roman culture, it didn't matter what you believed in, as long as you believed in the emperor, okay? As long as you paid your homage and your respect to the emperor in Rome, you can bring your religion in as is, as long as it didn't sort of rock the boat in that culture. And unlike many of the churches in the ancient world, it appears that the church in Philadelphia, or at least some variant thereof, has actually survived in some form to this day. In fact, uh, what I was able to look up, there's an actual Christian community that currently exists in the modern-day Turkish city of uh, Al-Sahir, which is on the, where Philadelphia used to be. And uh, this church there, or this Christian community, supposedly claims it can trace its lineage all the way back to apostolic times. So whereas most of these other churches have long since passed into the ash heap of history, at least the community here that was founded in Philadelphia, which we're calling the Faithful Church, still has a community, still has some kind of existence to this day, which is very interesting. So now as we get to the text, starting in verse 7, as usual, these letters all have, you know, it's kind of like an ancient form letter. And here we have, as in all the other letters, Christ, the one who is telling John to write these things down, to write these letters, dictates to him, and he gives him the command to write, and as he does so, he introduces himself to the church in some way that is significant to them. And here, in verse 7, we see that he says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. 
So here he introduces himself to the church in Philadelphia as the holy one, as the true one. Now, interestingly enough, unlike the other letters so far, these descriptions of Jesus are not taken from Revelation chapter 1. Okay? But they are accurate depictions of Jesus. If you think of the birth announcement of Jesus in Luke's gospel, uh, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and he says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. When she asks, she, you know, the angel tells her, you're going to have a child. She's like, how am I going to have a child? Because I don't know a man. And he says, well, I'm going to tell you how you're going to have a child. And he tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So here Jesus is described by the angel Gabriel as the Holy Son of God or the Holy Child. And of course, after the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, and Jesus gives the crowd a hard saying so that most of the people begin to depart and leave Jesus. They leave him because they could not take the hard saying that he was, he was giving them. He turns then to his disciples and he asks Peter, he says, do you want to leave also to the 12? And Peter responds and says, well, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So the word holy, hagios in the Greek, means, in the case of Jesus, pure, sinless, upright, or holy. Now, when holy is applied to us, who are not sinless people, it more, it more carries the meaning of being set apart for a particular use that is not... Uh, Secular or not mundane. We are set aside. We are holy to the Lord. But in the case of Jesus, holy has this, this idea of pure, sinless, upright, and, and, and holy. So this is, properly speaking, it's an attribute that can only be applied to God. And here it's being applied to Jesus. And the same goes for the true one. And that word true means real or genuine. Like the genuine article. Okay, so Jesus is not only a holy one, he is the real deal. He is the genuine article. He is the dependable one. He is the one in whom we can trust and rest. But Jesus here also describes himself as the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Now this phrase, key of David, is interesting because we see there's a reference to it in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 22, verse 22. Now what's going on here, a little bit of the context in Isaiah 22, this is taking place during the invasion, the Assyrian invasion of Sennacherib as he is attacking uh, Jerusalem and he's got his invading armies surrounding Jerusalem and they're about to uh, try to invade and Hezekiah at this time is king. And he doesn't appear to the Assyrian army by himself. He sends his representatives, and one of them is a guy named Eliakim, who is like his steward, like his chief steward in in his home. And the prophet says to, you know, in Isaiah chapter 22, he says, I will place on his shoulder, that is on Eliakim's shoulder, the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So the idea here is the Lord is going to place on the shoulders of Eliakim, the king's steward, he's going to give him the key to the house of David. Now, quick question here. What are keys for? 
to open, right? <laughs> right, keys open doors. The fact that's going to play a role a little bit later in the letter. And here, the key to the house of David is essentially the key or the keys to the kingdom. You see the same type of language here in Jesus' conversation with Peter in Matthew 16, 19, where when Peter makes the declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter or Jesus says to Peter, says, you have spoken rightly. And upon this rock, I will build my kingdom and I will give you the keys of the kingdom or keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So here the key of David that you see in Revelation and in Isaiah and the keys of the kingdom, I think, are the same thing. And these keys give to the ones wielding them the authority to admit or the authority to bar entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus, of course, is the one with the ultimate authority, but it is also delegated. The keys of the kingdom particularly are delegated to church, to the church to church officers, through the preaching of the gospel. That's the, key, the keys of the kingdom in our uh, context are the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of discipline, the marks of the church, the keys of the kingdom. So you, you bring people into the kingdom by the preaching of the gospel, and you exclude people from the kingdom by exercising discipline and barring them uh, from the sacraments or whatever in the case of gross sin. Now, what does it mean to the church in Philadelphia that Jesus introduces himself in this way? Because all of these introductions that we see so far in these letters has some significance to the church in that setting at that time when that letter was written to them. And based on what we could see throughout the rest of this letter, these images of Jesus will bring comfort and encouragement to the church in Philadelphia, to the people there in that church. In fact, as we'll see in just a moment, Jesus sets before them an open door. So here, Jesus, the one who has the key of David, the one who can open doors that no one will shut and can shut doors that no one will open, sets before this church an open door that we'll see that no one can shut. The reason no one can shut it is because Jesus himself has opened it and he's the one with the keys. So no one is going to be able to shut that door. But he also reveals himself to this church as the holy and true one. Jesus is presenting himself as the incarnate God, as the real deal, as the true Messiah. And this is going to have a play later on when we talk about this idea of this conflict that this church is having with a synagogue there, the synagogue of Satan. Okay. But of course, the church in Philadelphia is a church undergoing persecution in many forms. It is a beleaguered church. It is a church which Jesus says has but little power. And it's a church facing persecution from this group of Jewish people in this city. So knowing that the holy and true one writes to you is an encouraging thing. In fact, when the martyred saints, we'll look at this when we get to Revelation 6, but when that fifth seal is cracked, you get a vision of the saints that have been martyred. They're under the altar. And they cry out to God and they say, how long until we are vindicated? And then God says, just hold on a little while longer. But they cry out to the one who is called holy and true. So that that depiction of holy and true is being applied to God here. 
And when Jesus returns at the end of the age, when he returns upon his white horse, he is called the one who is faithful and true, who judges in righteousness. So the bottom line is here that persecuted Christians need a holy and a true judge in order to vindicate them. One who will judge in in true righteousness and one who will vindicate those who are under persecution. So now we move on to verse 8, where we see the diagnosis of the church. Again, as in all the letters, Jesus claims to know their works. And in verse 8, he says, I know your works. because Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So Jesus here is the one who walks among the lampstands. We saw that earlier. He is the one who is the king and the bridegroom over the church. So, of course, he is the one who knows their works. He is the one who is intimately involved with his church and knows what's going on in his church. And like he does with all previous letters, Jesus tells the church that he is aware of their activity. Now, like Smyrna and unlike Sardis, Jesus only has positive things to say to the church in Philadelphia. Now, when we looked last time at the church in Sardis, he had nothing nice to say to them. He only had negative things to say to them. And next time when we see Laodicea, that's also going to be a church he has nothing good to say about. But here, he has nothing bad to say about this church, just like he did with Smyrna back in chapter 2. So there's no rebuke for Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is known as the faithful church because, as we see in verse 8, they have kept my word and they have not denied my name. Now, as I've said before, time and time again, these are real churches from history. Jesus is writing letters to real first century churches at the end of the first century. But these are also, as we've said, representative of the church throughout all ages. And here, Philadelphia is representing all faithful churches. And all faithful churches do two things. They keep the words of Jesus, and they do not deny the name of Jesus. Okay? That is the mark of a faithful church. One that keeps what Jesus says and holds fast to his name. The keeping of Jesus' words is how we show our love to Jesus. That's what he says in John 14 and verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will what? Keep my word and my father will love him and we will come into him and make our home with him. And of course, not denying the name of Jesus is how we show our faith to the world. Jesus, when he sends out the 12 in Matthew chapter 10, when he sends the 12 out at the end of that chapter, he says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny my father uh, before my father who is in heaven. So in other words, how you treat the name of Jesus here in this life will be how Jesus will represent you before the father. If you are faithful to keep the name of Jesus, then Jesus will stand up for you before his father in heaven. And of course, vice versa. If you deny the name of Jesus, then he will deny your name before his father in heaven. Interestingly enough, when we looked at Sardis two weeks ago, we saw what was one of the promises to the overcomers. That they would not have their name blotted out of the book of life and that Jesus would also acknowledge them 
before them. I will, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And here we see that playing out again here. This church was one that kept the name of Christ and not deny his name. In fact, that was a lot, of, a lot of the ways you saw some of the persecution going in this period of time. They would ask you to deny the name of Christ. And if you deny the name of Christ, then they would, you know, they would let up on the persecution. But if you did not deny the name of Christ, then more likely than not, you would be executed. So Jesus knows their works. He knows that they've been faithful, that they have kept his word and not denied his name. But he also knows that they have but little power. And I love this. <laughs> I really do. I love this. So this, too, is another sign of a faithful church, in my, in my opinion. I, mean, I think when you think of the most successful churches in the world today, you look at things such as what? You look at the size of the church. Okay, how many people are going to this church? The more members, the more pastors, the more staff, then you equate, obviously, the more successful, right? Or the number of ministries they have. The more and varied ministries the church offers, then by all accounts, they are more successful. Or finances, right? The larger the budget and the more the church is able to spend in ministry, the more successful. Or influence. The more influence her pastor has, or the more times he is invited to speak at conferences, or the more widely across the globe the church reaches, then the more successful. Now, this is not meant to say or imply that large, wealthy churches are inherently bad, but that's not how we should measure success in the world, right? It is not a question of bigger, better, bolder, whatever, right? It's a question of how faithful you are to the gospel. Well, I just mentioned here, this is success the way the world measures it. And it does not always equate to powerful gospel ministry. Some of the most faithful churches are the ones you will never hear of because they're faithfully proclaiming the gospel in some obscure little place, like in South Central Nebraska, perhaps. And <laughs> not to, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but the point is, the idea being is, the successful churches are not always the ones that are the biggest, the best, and everything like that. In fact, it's not unusual to see big, powerful megachurches collapse under the weight of their own ego. Most, most of these churches, and I, I had a few of them back in Illinois where I lived, most of these churches are really built around the personality of one person, usually the, the founding pastor. And then when that pastor leaves, then the church either falls apart or it splits because you have... People that were so, well, I only came to this church because so-and-so was here preaching. And then when he leaves, they go off somewhere else. And then you've got, now you've got two churches or whatever. You know, so these big mega churches, you know, you can say, well, okay, yeah, they're doing a lot of good things, at least on the outside. But you have to understand, what is their model? What are they built on? Okay. If they're built on pure gospel preaching and faithful sacraments administration and faithful discipline, and they're also big, then God is blessing that. But if they're built on a cult of personality, well, maybe you need to take another look at that. In fact, look how the Apostle Paul, I'm not going to ask you to turn here, but the Apostle Paul describes the church in Corinth. And you might even think that the church in Corinth might have been like an ancient megachurch. Okay? I mean, they had a lot of things going for it that, that were good. They were a very spiritually gifted church. They were a very wealthy church. They had a lot of powerful preachers at that church. Yet they had a lot of problems internally. And Paul, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, describes this church. He says, for consider your calling. 
This is 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So here's the church of Corinth. Not many wise, not many powerful, not many noble. But God chooses the weak to shame the strong. He chooses the foolish to shame the proud. I contend that the strongest churches and the healthiest churches, the most successful churches, are the ones that look for all intents and purposes foolish, weak, and lowly. And here, Philadelphia was a church with little power, with little power. But, it's my favorite word, come on. <laughs> but, when we are weak, he is strong. Right? That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. He gave Paul the thorn in the flesh, and he says, I gave you that thorn so that you would learn to depend upon me for your strength. For when you are weak, Paul, and Paul had a lot of good things going for him, right? I mean, he was, a, he was an amazing apostle. He did many wonderful works. I mean, the Christian church, in large parts, if you're looking at human agency, the Christian church is pretty much almost all Paul, at least very early on. He is responsible for the spread of the church throughout the whole Roman Empire from a human perspective. So he had a lot going for him. He had a lot of, you know, he, he did a lot of miracles. He wrote a lot of the Bible. I mean, here's a guy who, if he wanted to go down and check, check off things on his resume, had a lot to boast about. But then God gives him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. He says, I want you to know that the power does not rely on you. The power relies on me working through you. So he says, when you are weak, I am strong. So the church in Philadelphia had little power, but when we are weak, he is strong. Now, because Jesus knows their works, because he knows they are a faithful church, then the one who has the key of David now has set before them an open door. Now, what is meant here by the open door? Well, there have been two answers for this, and I kind of... I kind of go back and forth on which one I like the best. So I'm going to stick with my answer that I gave you this morning when I was going over Romans 8. I was like, if I come up with two explanations for uh, a question that I see in the Bible that are not mutually exclusive, then I'm going to say, well, maybe both can be true. Okay? Why do I have to pick and choose? I, I like eating cake, and I like having my cake and eating it as well. So the first possible uh, meaning for the open door, and this is probably the most popular one, is that it can refer to ministry opportunities given to the church. So because they are a faithful church, because they have kept his word, because they have not denied his name, Christ then says, I'm giving you an open door of ministry. You are a faithful church. You are my faithful tool. I'm going to use you now for ministry. And this phrase, open door, is a been used in the New Testament throughout to describe ministry opportunities. I'm going to give you three examples. You can write these references down if you like. The first one is in Acts chapter 14 and verse 27. And it says, this is um, probably during Paul's first missionary journey. 
And he says, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. So this is at the end of their first missionary journey. They're now back. This is Paul and Barnabas. They're now back in Antioch and they're giving their missionary report. And he says, and he says, so he, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So they're there and they're talking to the church in Antioch and they're saying, God has opened a great door for ministry for us on our missionary journey. And, he, and we have seen the, the, you know, the conversion of many souls, many Gentiles coming to faith. At the end of the, uh, the, his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 16 and verse 9, he says, For a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. And then in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, At the same time, Pray also for us that God may open a door to us, open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So as I said before, what better way to use a faithful church than by opening doors of ministry, by giving them opportunities to take how they've been faithful to the word of God and then spreading that out to the region around them. And when Christ opens a door, no one can shut it. So that's one option. The other option is that the open door can also be a reference to what John will see a little bit later in Revelation 4.1. So I don't know if, you've, if it's on the same page or you need to flip a page over. But if you look at Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, After this, I looked. This is John now. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me was like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So here John is getting a vision and it's going to be the vision that will carry us through from chapter four all the way through chapter 20. Basically, the things that will take place after this. And he is he sees a door open into heaven. He's invited up into heaven. So this reference to an open door here can mean that Jesus has set before the church in Philadelphia an open door straight into the heavenly kingdom. And given what we're going to see a little bit later as conflict with a local synagogue, we can see that this open door is a reward for the Christians uh, in Philadelphia because they have been sort of barred from or closed out of the synagogue there in Philadelphia. So either an open door for ministry or an open door into the kingdom of heaven. And like I said, usually when I see two possibilities, uh, two possible answers that aren't mutually exclusive, I see no reason why to choose one over the other. I think both can apply here. I probably lean a little bit more toward the open door of ministry option since that's a majority report, but I think there's a lot of merit to the argument that it's also the open door into the kingdom of heaven. Well, moving on now to Revelation uh, verses 9 through 11 here, we're going to see now the encouragement from Jesus. So he has introduced himself, he has diagnosed the church, and now, like we said, there's no rebuke. He just gives them a string of encouraging words here. In verse 9, he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. 
So first here, he makes a promise regarding those of the synagogue of Satan. This is the second time we've seen this synagogue of Satan. We saw it earlier in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. Again, it was Smyrna that was also dealing with the synagogue of Satan. And when we looked at that church, uh, that letter to the church in Smyrna, we noted that the synagogue of Satan basically are Jews who are intentionally and deliberately working against the kingdom of God and their Messiah. In other words, they're not being true Jews. They are Jews outwardly, but they are acting and working against the kingdom. They're working and acting against their Messiah, their king. Because as we noted before, a true Jew is not a matter of externals. It is not a matter of just being circumcised and saying, I follow the law of Moses. A true Jew is one who has been circumcised inwardly, right? With the circumcision not made by hands, but one made uh, on the heart of the person. So these Jews who say they're Jews, yet openly persecute the church of Jesus Christ, are showing themselves to be liars. And Jesus says he will make these lying Jews come and bow down before your feet. Now here, this is a case of prophetic irony. Okay, who, who likes, you know, the, the, the old phrase, you know, revenge is a dish best served cold. Or <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with what I'm about to say here. But the idea being is that there's going to be a little bit of prophetic irony going on here. Because in Isaiah chapter 45... There's a prophecy there that says that the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, surely God is in you and there is no other. uh, There is no other. No God besides him. This is a prophecy given by Isaiah to Jews in exile, saying that the Gentile nations are going to come and bow down before them in the end of the age. So the irony here is that these false Jews, to whom supposedly this prophecy came, are going to be the ones that are going to be now coming to bow down before the church, which is largely a Gentile church here in this case. In other words, these Jews, these lying Jews, are being treated as Gentiles, (laughs) Okay, and they're going to be the ones that are going to be coming to bow down before the church here in Philadelphia because they have been shown to be liars. They've been shown to be false Jews, a synagogue of Satan. So it's these lying Jews that Jesus says they will learn that I love you. Again, the irony, because the Jews, of course, were the chosen people. They're the ones, the apple of God's eye. They were the ones that God called out when You know, he says, you know, I chose you not because you're the mightiest, not because of any of these things, but because I loved you and because I made a covenant with your forefathers. That is why I've chosen you. Yet just because you're a Jew, again, because you're ethnically a Jew does not mean you're of the people of Israel, the true Israel. Okay, that's what Paul will say in Romans 9, where he says, not all who call themselves Jews are true Jews. So they will learn that I love you, that the the idea here is that they will see that this church is the true church and that they will have to now come and bow down before them. But secondly here, Jesus promises to keep them from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. 
Again, now first note that this promise is based on the fact that they have kept his word about patient endurance. This is the church that kept the word of Christ. Jesus had earlier commended them for the fact that they kept his word. So now because the church here in Philadelphia was faithful to keep the words of Jesus, he would then keep them from the hour of trial. Now this is not a promise to keep the church from trials or suffering or martyrdom. Rather, this is a promise to keep the church from the hour of trial, or literally the hour of testing. So this is most likely, if not a reference to final judgment, then certainly a type of divine judgment upon the wicked. Because you have that phrase there, this hour of trial is coming upon those who, uh, who dwell on the earth. That phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is used throughout Revelation. We'll see this as we go on is to describe the wicked of Revelation, the people who shake their fist at God, the people who reject Jesus Christ, reject God and reject his word. Now, second, what is exactly this hour of trial? So here's where we're going to get a little bit into some interpretational issues here. Because if you hold to a dispensational point of view, okay, and we talked a little bit about this at the beginning when we introduced the entire book of Revelation. There's different ways to interpret and understand how the, the flow of Revelation goes. And if you hold to a dispensational point of view, then you're going to look at this and you're going to see this as a, in their perspective, a sort of a proof text for their, their view of the rapture, Okay. So they see the hour of trial as a reference to the great tribulation. So again, in the, in the dispensational mindset, in the dispensational model, all right, you've got the church is sort of what they would call a parenthesis in the plan of God for Israel. So all the promises that God, all the prophecies that God made to Israel, all the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament, from a dispensational point of view, are going to be fulfilled in Israel. So when you get the church, the church is sort of like a, lack of a better word, a parenthesis, a pause in the program of God's program for Israel. So it's like God says, okay, I'm going to put Israel on hold for a second. I'm going to put them on the back burner. We're going to work with the church for a while. Now at the end, when it's time now to go back to my program with Israel, I'm going to rapture the church out of here. And then I'm going to go back to work on Israel and redeem a bunch of, you know, then all the promises that I made to them in the Old Testament will come fulfilled now. So this idea of the hour of trial then is seen as the great tribulation. So the church has already been taken out. And this is the period of seven years between the rapture of the church until the time Christ comes back to judge everything and then set up his millennial kingdom which is a Jewish-only kind of thing, where everything will be fulfilled for the Jews at that point. So when Jesus promises to keep this church from the hour of trial, he's doing so, then this is what they'll say, by rapturing them out of the world before the tribulation. Now, we here at Emmanuel Reformed Church, we reject this view for several reasons. Okay, First of all, this dispensational view of the rapture, in my opinion, is not really supported in Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that dispensationalists don't have proof texts that they will look to and say, this proves the rapture, this proves the rapture, this proves the rapture. But when you really look at it, it doesn't really prove the rapture. Okay. Plus the premillennial return of Christ, I don't believe is what you see in scripture as well. 
The Bible nowhere says that Christians will be kept from tribulation. Right? What what does Jesus say? He says, you know, know, you're not going to be kept from trial, but what's going to happen is you're going to recognize that I'm with you through the trials. Right? Christians will be spared from judgment because Jesus was judged in their place. So then what is then this hour of trial? So I think when we get to the greater part of Revelation from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 20, uh, the period between the resurrection and the, and, and the return of Christ, this period, I believe, is what we would call the millennium. So the millennium from our point of view, at least from my point of view, and many Reformed people believe this, the millennium basically is the period between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. We're in the millennium now. Okay, Christ is sitting on his throne at the right hand of God. He is reigning and ruling over his church. It is a spiritual reign and rule. It is not a physical reign and rule yet. But the kingdom of God, the church, is spreading. It's growing. And as people come into the church, you know, the kingdom is growing. That's what Jesus said in his parables in Matthew 13. You know, the, the kingdom of God is like a small seed that grows into a large tree that the birds of the air can come and find their rest in. And throughout this period of time, from Revelation 4 to Revelation 20, or in the millennium, the period that we're in now, between the resurrection and the return of Christ, in this period we will see God's judgment at various points on the wicked. God doesn't just save up all of his judgment for judgment day. What do we learn in Romans chapter 1? The wrath of God is being revealed. It is being revealed now upon the people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, as the end draws near, not only will the persecution of the church increase in intensity, but also God's wrath against the rebellious uh, will be revealed as well. That will also somewhat intensify against those who dwell on the earth. So this hour of trial, I think, like I said, if it's not final judgment, then it is one of a set of series what I believe will be God's judgment on the wicked in the earth. Okay. Now, Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. In other words, you will not be judged because you have already been judged in Christ. Christ has taken your judgment. Doesn't mean you're not going to face persecution. The church here in Philadelphia is facing persecution. Smyrna is the persecuted church. The church is facing persecution today. There are places in the globe today where the church is heavily persecuted. So this idea that the church is not going to undergo any kind of tribulation is nowhere found in the Bible. At least that's what I believe. So Jesus promises to He promises to he, he makes a promise regarding those of the synagogue of Satan. He promises to keep them from the hour of trial. Third, he exhorts then the, the church in Philadelphia to hold fast. He says in verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, we've seen Jesus say this before in Revelation that he is coming soon, right? We saw this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. We saw this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. We saw it in Revelation chapter 3, verse 3, this idea that Jesus is coming soon or that he's coming as a thief in the night or that he's going to come quickly. In each of these passages, there is a warning of impending judgment. But here, it is not so much a warning as it is an encouragement for the church in Philadelphia to hold fast. I'm coming soon, so hold fast. 
Stand your ground. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing these things so that no one will take your crown. No one will seize your crown. And we saw this this idea of the crown as well before in Revelation 2.10. It is the crown of life. It is the crown that is given to the victor in the games that were popular back in those days. It is the victor's crown. So be vigilant, church in Philadelphia, so no one snatches your crown. So be vigilant in the Christian life. Being vigilant is a daily activity that we have to do, right? You know, make your calling and election sure. That's what Peter tells the church. Make your calling and election sure. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Of course, the other half of that verse is because it is God who works in you to, you know, to work and to will for his good pleasure. So work and keep, you know, keep being vigilant. And thankfully, this is not something we need to do and undertake in our own strength. Something that we do in the strength of the Holy Spirit. Again, remember, church in Philadelphia had what? Had little power. A teeny tiny amount of power. So you work in the power of the Holy Spirit. Then finally, to the overcomer, the victor, to the one who conquers, we see the promise here. Jesus says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And I will put on him my own new name. Now, Christ here first says he's going to make the overcomer a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, what comes to mind when you hear pillars? Supports. Supports. Strength. Yeah. Pillars help to support the temple structure. They are permanent fixtures in the temple. The temple is the representation of God's presence among his people. So therefore, this promise indicates that the overcomer will never be removed from God's presence. Again, considering the conflict that they had with a local Jewish community who had shut the doors of the synagogue and kept them from fellowship with one another, this promise now holds a special meaning. They will not be shut out of the temple of my God, which is the pres- being shut out of being in the presence of my God. They will be there all the time because they will be pillars in that temple. They are rejected by the Jews, but they have a permanent place in the presence of God and no one can take that away. Moreover, if you remember what we said earlier, Philadelphia had susceptibility to earthquakes. It was, a, it was on a major fault line. So they were, it was a, a city that was shaken easily. And this idea of pillars, though, gives one a feeling of unshakable stability. The strength and the stability that a pillar provides in supporting the overall structure. Now, secondly, Jesus promises to write on him, that is the overcomer, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and my new name. Of course, first, the name of my God. This is a sign of ownership. When you were kids and you had something and your parents gave you something, what did they tell you to do so you wouldn't lose it? Put your name on it. (laughs) I remember growing up, I had, of course, my mom did two things. First, she got me those stupid little clips that you would put on the edge of your coat. So if you had your mittens, they would, if you decided to take your mittens off, they would just hang there on the clip. But secondly, my mom would put little labels of my name on my gloves in case my gloves got lost or someone took my gloves. I could say the, the, my, 
with my name on those gloves, those are my, those are my gloves, right? Or you put your name on, in your books. Some of you put your name in your books. Those are my books, all right? When God puts his name on us, it is a sign of ownership. We will have God's name written on us, which means that we are his and he is ours. Secondly, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, will be written on us. Now, the new Jerusalem, if you were here this morning, the new Jerusalem is that city, the new city, the church, the bride of Christ, which comes down out of heaven from comes down from God out of heaven. And having the new Jerusalem written on us tells us that our identity and our citizenship is in heaven. That's what Paul says in Philippians three. My citizenship is not of this world. My citizenship is in heaven. I'm not a citizen of this world. I'm a citizen of heaven. And the name of the New Jerusalem is on us. It's like having, again, an ID card now. You know, I, if I showed my, my driver's license, it would say Sutton, Nebraska on it. So in, in a sense, you could say Sutton, Nebraska is written on me because I'm a resident of this city. So we belong to the New Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. And then third, we will have Christ's new name written on us. And again, this goes back to Revelation 2.17. The overcomer in Pergamos was also promised a new name. But more importantly, this is Christ's new name. And the new name of Christ is he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. This is the public honor of being identified with Christ. Again, we are his and he is ours. And then as always, Jesus concludes each of these letters with a warning to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, churches, plural. So even though he's writing to the church in Philadelphia, he is warning all of the churches. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So each of these letters is providing a warning for all of us to heed. And we need to heed the warning of all of these letters. So is from this letter, what do we see? Well, are we here at Emmanuel Reformed Church? Are we a faithful church? Do we recognize that we have little power? Do we keep the word of Christ and not deny his name? Do we see any open doors for us for fruitful ministry? Well, by God's grace, may we be a church that hears what the Spirit is saying to us here in Sutton, Nebraska, saying to the churches here.